Hello, and welcome back to the Community Agriculture Project podcast. I'm your host, Emily, and you are tuning in to the first episode of the second season of our podcast. So before we get into it with our incredible guest today, I'm just going to give a little recap of what all went down in season one and give some updates on the project and a few shout outs to community members who have been supporting our work. So in season one, we met with so many amazing guests and we were able to cover everything from Puerto Rican coffee to community air quality monitoring to climate policy and education. We covered multiple scales of farming, from rural farming to urban gardening right here in the city. And I think that season one not only is a reflection of my personal community, but is also a reflection of the range of frameworks that could be laid out by people to have a closer connection to their food. So if you haven't already, dive into season one, because there's a lot of goodness there. We were also able to feature some content from our summer 2023 interns. Shout out to Irata2 and Ethan. So yeah, please check it out. If you're following us on Instagram, you may have already seen this, but the Community Agriculture Project is participating in the Artisan Fund. The Artisan Fund is defined by them as a community fund for art, science, technology, and design. The fund partners with top organizations like Microsoft, just to name one, to award match funding for projects at the frontier of human creativity. Each season, the Artisan Fund curates innovative projects from creators who make a positive impact in the world. Once selected, those projects are able to sell cultural artifacts to unlock match funding from our sponsors to compete for the prestigious Artisan Prize. So the Artisan Fund pretty much exhibits artifacts, which are a new type of NFT, which you may have heard of, is also known as a non-fungible token in the crypto world, that is designed to capture the spark of inspiration behind a project and its intended impact on the world. So projects like mine sell artifacts to unlock match funding and compete for the artisan prize. We have a beautiful artifact and the ways that this funding campaign can be supported is directly through the artisan site where you can purchase one of our artifacts if you already have a crypto wallet. And if you don't have a crypto wallet, then we are accepting donations directly to support the purchase of artifacts and donations can be made through PayPal, and I'm going to link the PayPal in the description of this episode if you're interested in supporting them. All the support helps to compete in the match funding campaign, and all funds in general will go toward documenting food sovereignty stories across the U.S., which is the mission of the Community Ag Project, and we want to just keep on doing what we're doing with our mission. So I just want to give a shout out to those that have supported us so far in the Artisan Fund um, campaign. And those people would be Jezreel White of Real Exposure Media. Shout out to Jezreel and his business. He does amazing documentation and photography work. Also want to give a shout out to Eric Jacobs who could be found on Instagram as infinite.brick, R-I-C. Shout out to Eric and his project Onward Portal. Lastly, we want to give a shout out to Christina Alex. Christina is an amazing community member that has been working with Equal Exchange, which is a co-op that you may have heard of or seen at your grocery store. Shout out to Christina and all the work that she does for the avocado and banana team at Equal Exchange. We love you, Christina. And of course, I can't forget to give a shout out to the Artisan Fund team. They've been so supportive in this journey and they have actually selected the Community Agriculture Project artifact to be exhibited at Art Basel in Miami, which is coming up in the second weekend of December. Our artifact is going to be shown at Beyond Basel, which is going to be an event with many featured artists. So if any of our listeners are out there in Miami or are going to be in the area for Art Basel, please keep an eye out for our artifact. And... Yeah, I might as well give a description of the artifact. You can see it uh, online on our websites, on our artisan page, uh, and on Instagram, but I'll describe it for the listeners. It is a photo of a beekeeper from the Island Bee Project. Shout out to the Island Bee Project. 
and I took this photo on film while I was at an event at Ogle Farms, which is an aquaponic farm based in Williamsburg, Brooklyn. If you're in the area, I highly recommend checking out both those projects. So, like I said, I will be linking the information for our PayPal donations in the show notes. You can find more information about the Artisan Fund on our website and Instagram, and I'm also here to answer any questions that you might have about it. The funding campaign goes until about January 28th, so there is still time to reach out and donate. So that's all for our announcements and recap, and now we're going to get into the first episode of season two of our podcast. So on the Community Agriculture Project, we've definitely put a lens to the different ways that community can be in relation to food. And I think it's important to start off season two with some more formal frameworks of how community can be in relation to one another. Our guest today provides a lot of expertise around that, so I'm going to let them introduce themselves and we'll go from there. Hello, my name is Ebony and uh, I was talking to you about this earlier. I'm like, how do I introduce myself? Well, my friend B said, I see you as like a community architect, which I love that word. And definitely view myself as a storyteller and archivist as well. And I also have a podcast where I interview different solidarity models. And all of that is so deeply rooted in community. Like that is the foundation creating that so that we can trust each other and create these economic systems that are different from the dominant one. So, that's so, me. Lovely. Um, thank you for being here. Can you let the listeners know or tell the listeners a little bit about what is a solidarity economy since this can be the basis for what a lot of different communities can look like? Yes. Oh, you know, it's actually really difficult for me to define what the solidarity economy is. And I usually refer to it in its values. And so it's non-hierarchical. It puts people in the planet over profit. It is truly democratic and cooperative. And at its root is relationships and how we relate to each other and how we relate to our environment. So the solidarity economy looks like many different things and they could be you interacting with your neighbor and meeting their need by watching their child or giving them something that they need and not necessarily asking for money. Like it's definitely rooted in relationship in a way that it uh, dissolves this need for a transaction between two people. And it also looks like a food co-op. It looks like a childcare cooperative. It looks like an artist collective. So there's so many different examples and there's also a lot of agricultural examples and especially in other countries, I feel as, as if more people use the cooperative model as farmers in order to get their needs met. Yeah, that was going to be my next question for you, um, was really to talk about specific examples of, you know, cooperative models that you've seen in real... Well, first, I'm curious about what is the cooperative model that inspires you the most and inspires your lens the most? And then after that, which specific agriculture cooperatives around the world have you seen? So we can get to that, too. Hmm. That's kind of a hard question. What's my favorite model? But one that I have kept coming back to especially recently is this one that I went to in Turin Italy and it's this warehouse where 
they have access to a woodworking studio, they have sewing machines, they have bike repair, something called precious plastics where they turn certain plastics into uh, different things. And people have access to this by just paying, I believe it's like 10 euros a month. Oof. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> yeah, and it's such a way for people to learn like practical skills through each other. And the reason why it's able to not just sustain, but actually have like a budget where they're able to spend money on other things um, is because the government pays for their utilities. And this building uh, was occupied initially but the 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 city itself actually has something called a co-city project where they allow people to have access to abandoned indoor and outdoor spaces and they will give it to them for free um but they will also help them to like maintain it and so this was actually before that co-city project but Turin, Italy in itself is such an inspiration for me because of that co-city project but this model in particular I'm like how do we get this in New York we have so many abandoned spaces so many industrial spaces and why do we not have access to a creative space where people can have an accessible membership fee and be able to Skillshare with each other all the time? The thing that I can think about is community gardens. Like, especially in New York City, in the ones that I've gone around and seen, um, especially in Brooklyn too, a lot of the stories will be like, yeah, this lot was an abandoned cemented lot and nothing was going on and it was regenerated. And now it's a space where people can grow food and people can come in and spend a certain amount of money per year to have their own plot, share tools, and get to be in this space where even if they're growing food for the first time, they can be on that journey, but there's always people close by and that are part of that community garden that they can learn from. Mm -hmm. Yeah, community gardens are such a safe haven. Like it's been proven that they reduce crime. And I don't know, sometimes the community gardens in New York, I'm like, why are they always so, why are they always closed? And Ooh, I actually kind of have an answer to that. I mean, it actually depends, but and it's not really just an answer, but I guess more of something that I've seen here and there. But honestly, the sentiment in community gardens is community gardens are a very sacred place, especially in the city. And I think with a lot of the times with gentrification, there's been people that are established in those communities and have established their community garden and then people will kind of feel entitled to the space where it's already established to like serve the community that's already been there. Mm. And so I know that there can be a lot of trust that needs to be built um, in garden spaces too before anybody can just go in, you know? Yeah. Even like one time I was on my uh, walk home because I used to work in like sustainable landscaping the sustainable landscaping job arguably don't know if it was um actually sustainable but there's also a lot of definitions that weird but anyway um i was thinking i was like wow i work this job now and i have access to so many resources that are sometimes not used all the way or like sometimes i'll go to work and they'll be like oh we have all these extra plants or we have extra this or extra that do you want it or wait I don't know what we're gonna do with this and then I walked by a community garden one time on my way home from work and then I kind of I saw somebody in there I saw the gate ajar a rare occurrence and I kind of knocked and I was like hey is it like may I come in and they were like no just keep walking and I was like okay you know heard because that's kind of just how it is they don't know me 
they don't know what I'm about to walk in and bring, you know? Right. But then uh. I guess also, not to get into, like, deep into community gardens, but I'm like, oh, it sucks that it's not just an inherent thing for us to protect our natural environments around us, that we feel like we need to police them. Yeah. That there's only certain people that get it. And, but also the community garden movement in New York City, especially in Lower East Side, uh, that has been such an inspiration for me too, because a lot of those happened when Manhattan was being abandoned by landlords Mm. and buildings were being uh, demolished or burned for insurance. And so these spaces became occupied and a lot of times by artists and they turned them into community gardens or some of the buildings were squatted and those turned into housing cooperatives. Mm. And so... Other forms of cooperatives. Yes. Yeah. So, yeah, the Lower East Side especially is just so radical in that way because they've held on to them. Well, they've literally chained themselves to the gates of the community gardens to wow. stop them from destroying it. I had no idea. I mean, I kind of knew about the some of the artist movements, but I didn't really realize about the community gardens. Thank you for sharing that. So, okay, we got a world traveler in the house. Like, 30 countries before 30? Let's just put that out there. So... If you may, maybe mention a few that you've seen that stand out to you of, yeah, cooperative models in relation to agriculture that you've seen, because there's a lot of blueprints out there. Mm-hmm. Yes. So, uh, there's one that inspires me. It's actually in the U.S., And it's led by, I want to say they, well, I'm not going to butcher what country they're from, but they (laughs) are from a country in Africa and they came here and they started a cooperative together. So they actually bought land together. They are like organizing what crops they're growing collectively, like everything is done collectively. And it's called New Roots Cooperative. And it's just so inspiring because I've seen examples. And where in the U.S. are they? Hmm. I can't remember where in the U.S. they are. But New Roots Cooperative. We'll, we'll link them in the Yeah, in the I'll, I'll find it. Yeah. And... Uh, Yeah, there's been some other examples where I've seen, like, producers. uh, There's, like, the Indiana Black Farmers Cooperative, and they are producer-led. So they have their own individual spaces, but they come together to sell at the market and to leverage a more uh, distribution. They have more power when they do it that way and they also are able to pull their resources to buy materials that they need and tools um and i'm trying to think of honestly i haven't visited any internationally but i know of one the south african one that i was talking to you about earlier actually they they took an abandoned space in their village and they started farming cooperatively and it's able to feed their community like the whole village is sharing the food from this garden and so when I think of like the potential for especially people of cut like black people specifically in the US how they can have access to land again cuz it's only 1% of the land is owned by black people in the US i think of the potential for cooperative models 
and I recently learned about uh, this group Jubilee Justice and they started a rice mill that's cooperatively owned and it's just yeah it just creates so much more self-determination for the farmers because now they no longer have this middleman they're able to control that on their own and that's something we we definitely in the past couple of days talking have touched on so many times like because we were actually we actually went to the sheep and wool festival yesterday now uh in rhinebeck new york and even there in conversation with other people we talked a lot about access to processing and how that can really kind of change the game because if for example one thing that we spoke about uh with somebody that was there from Fibershed, uh, which is a whole another thing to talk about, but with somebody that was there from Fibershed and they're uh, with other organizations too, some of the waste wool that you get when you're uh, shearing a sheep, that waste wool can be used for a lot of different things. Um, and for some of those applications, you want that waste wool to be cleaned and for others, I feel like it would matter less, like in a housing insulation type of situation. I don't know if you really need to like wash it. Or um, also you can put the waste wool in your garden and use it to kind of insulate your soil, help retain moisture. Um, and yeah, it can it can be helpful with that. So you can decrease watering. Um, but you have to wash all of that wool and have it clean for other applications. So they were saying that there's a bunch of waste wool, but there's no like collective action to get all that waste wool together and have it be clean. So that's like something that they need to scale up and provide. So that's not even, that's hardly a processing example. That's a very light processing example, but the power, and there's so many other examples of like coffee processing which we talked about in our episode with uh Domenico from Puerto Rico uh and the coffee processing there um it's true for other farmers that I've talked about with access to uh having a meat processor that's actually like approved by the government or whatnot um there's a lot of control that can be imparted with the presence or the lack thereof of that processing but a lot of the times, like, people have spent so much energy and so much time getting to the point where they're like, okay, I have something to process. And I feel like it can be really helpful to know, like, okay, I can work with people that I'm already in community with to, and we can pool our energy, we can pool our resources to get this next step that we need to give us that sovereignty. So that's really cool mm-hmm. and that's i think really helpful because you know it, it could guide some of our listeners to be like oh yeah i wanted the, i wanted this next step for me or my business and how do i get to that next step yeah and that's also what's so amazing about cooperative models because it can look like so many different things it can also just be sharing resources with each other sharing like tools with each other and you have your own individual practice like an art for an artist for example they could be in a collective where they're pooling their money to buy the tools that they need and then they're sharing it amongst each other so yeah that's actually what I was gonna ask too so even uh, with that grant that I was telling you I was applying for um, or I was looking at the application for it and they ask in the grant like what type of co-op do you have so you mentioned before there's a producer led there's there's a few different ones so can you talk about each of those and yeah kind of what they look like for mm-hmm. somebody that has never really considered these type of models mm-hmm So there's worker-owned cooperatives, which means that the workers have a stake in the business. They actually have ownership. And that's 
like monetarily ownership but also ownership in the decisions that are made and what they put their energy into how they budget everything is done cooperatively a consumer cooperative is a membership of people that are consuming essentially so like a food co-op would be a consumer cooperative which can also be a worker co-op so another thing is there's like (laughs) multi-stakeholder co-ops where there can just be different levels and integration of all of these models and yes so a consumer co-op it I think it works really well in uh, food co-ops in the way that they're able to keep costs low because they sometimes they don't have employees Mm -hmm. so essentially if you are a member of that co-op you will put in a certain amount of hours per week or per month and like the members are also the employees but Mm -hmm. they're getting a large discount it's really cool i mean if you're a member you're getting organic food like half off what it normally costs which is incredible so it also keeps costs really low for the consumers Mm. another one is producer so those are producers that are coming together for instance since you brought up fiber shed there's a carbon farm network and they are a cooperative of designers that collectively buy wool because otherwise they it would be difficult for them to reach the minimum that the farmers need mm-hmm. in order to sell it. So with producer co-ops, you can save money, but you can also have more leverage in the market if you are pooling what you're selling together. Mm-hmm. Um, mm. And... Wow. Am I missing one? There, you mentioned the multi-stakeholder one, which is can be a combination of any of those three question mm-hmm. marks. <laughs> I feel like food, like our food co-ops, a combination of all three: producer, consumer, and worker. Sometimes, or maybe not. I only know of one. Um, that is in St. Louis, and they have. A multi-stakeholder model where they have a brick and mortar food co-op they also have a garden mm. where some of the things that they grow there they sell at the market um they also have like a sliding scale market they some of the things that they sell they're getting from local gardeners and like farmers nearby and they also have a restaurant that is worker-owned. And the restaurant is sliding scale using the produce from the Uh, co-op. And Wow. And so with this, and this is all something that's just like available to the public. Yes, you have to have a membership, but it's very accessible. Okay. Yeah. Wow. And what's that place called? Marsh Food Co-op. Ooh, in marsh, like the marsh, like the ecosystem. But it's actually an acronym, and the acronym I don't, <laughs> I don't know the acronym. And yeah, I actually have an episode with them on my podcast as well. And ooh, I'll have yeah. to link them. Yeah, that sounds awesome. Oh, they're so amazing. So yeah, those are the types of co-ops. Amazing. So there's a lot of a lot of different. Um, Oh, different. And this question I just thought of. What was your first exposure to co-ops? Mine for sure was a food co-op. And probably the one... Okay, well, let me just take a step back. I want to say my first one that was outwardly marketed as a co-op was a food co-op. That was in my college town, George Street Food Co-op. But... I'm sure that there were other cooperative models that were within my 
reality that I wasn't really sure that they were that or I didn't register them as such. Mm-hmm. So what was your, what was the first one that you can remember or what was the, your gateway cooperative? <laughs> mm. Well, yeah, I think food is like the introduction for most people and even me. I'm pretty sure that's the first co-op I experienced, but I feel like And I'm going to mention this one because I see it more as like a solidarity economy model than a co-op, even though they are functioning like a co-op. But there's also a distinction, I should say, uh, between like a collective, which generally is coming together voluntarily with shared values to meet a goal. A cooperative is generally like a business they Mm. have agreed to be in business together Mm -hmm. and share ownership in that way and you can so you can have solidarity in either of those yes or you cannot or you can because some cause might have solidarity there are some like ocean spray i don't know (laughs) oh oh i didn't realize so it's like how can you guarantee solidarity how can they be maintained yeah i would love to get into that uh so this place uh such a magical place which i've like researched it recently and apparently it doesn't exist anymore but it's called trust cafe and it is in amsterdam or was in amsterdam and it was uh there were there was actually no prices on the menu you could pay whatever you wanted at this restaurant and it was all volunteer run the food was bomb i still remember that french toast and they had a gratitude wall where people would leave like notes of gratitude on the wall and they had a gallery next door which is like i think it was called trust gallery too and i still remember the imagery in there and just like uh the energy was so amazing and I had never been to anything like that before. So that was my introduction, I think, uh, in a way that it really impacted me. I was like, where are more of these places? Where am I? Yes. Yeah. And I actually ended up doing something sort of similar called a karma kitchen which Mm. is actually something that's international but I did the first one in New York City and so someone allowed me to use their restaurant for free for a night and they actually cooked the food too which is so sweet and there were no prices on the menu people were able to pay it forward so it's like a pay it forward restaurant model where you're paying it for the person that comes after you Mm. and it was like an amazing three-course meal organic and people just paid whatever they could and so that's also something that like people can do i did it i organized within two weeks you could literally go on their website and they have information on how you can start one in your community karma kitchen so karma kitchen it wasn't established by you it was already established and you were like i want to tap into this yes it was established by service space which is also an amazing resource okay and we're gonna get to that later too we're just gonna rattle off a bunch (laughs) of amazing resources and try to plug as many as we can for you because there's a lot out there and yeah, I'm, I've been learning so much about it, so, yeah. So, maintaining solidarity, what, what does it look like? It's such a practice, and there's something called the Solidarity Economy Principles, which is actually a website, and it lays out a lot of the principles within the Solidarity Economy, and I don't think anyone is doing all of the things it's definitely a spectrum Mm. but i think actively working towards it and being aware of it is very important and 
yeah it has to be rooted in some sort of values like it needs to be rooted in solidarity values everyone needs to be actively like i wouldn't say actively engaged but able to be actively engaged and have their opinion valued and have their needs met I think it's a huge thing and that takes being in relationship with each other like you have to know the people that you're working with and what they need and also what you need how do you want to be cared for I was recently in this work retreat and there was like tension between certain people and so we had a feedback circle where there was rounds where we said really positive things about each other. And then there was a round where we shared things that hurt us. And through that process, we were able to learn so much about like, what are the things that we need to feel loved? Mm -hmm. And so making space for that and like constantly being open to receiving feedback and like adapting the needs of the people that you're working with mm. I think is how you stay rooted in solidarity and also through the entire supply chain like if you're making something I think that that's also what makes the solidarity economy distinct is like you're not just making something because it is the cheapest material or you're not sourcing things from very far away that you could get locally because it's cheaper like you're actually rooted in like local as much as possible paying people fairly and being very transparent about your practices and even your budget and it's really a two-way street because you don't you need to be honest and transparent with yourself bring that to others and be able to trust that others are going to bring that same sentiment to you. And while re- while keeping this whole system maintained. Yeah. So, Doing it with yourself first is so important. So, so important. And people also have to feel comfortable that they can share what's not working yeah. for them and what they need. Yeah. And... Ugh, I feel like it's such a great practice just in yourself first. Like, what am I doing for me that works well? What am I doing for me that's not working well? The more that you do that and are honest with yourself, I feel like the more you can do it with others. Okay, so so other... I want to go back to other ones that you've... Or, I guess... Worldwide, because I feel like we can just get so much perspective from looking outside of this U.S. bubble that we're in a lot of the times. Mm -hmm. So even if it's not food-related, like, which... What else have you seen outside the country in your travels? Mm. Ones that stand out to you? Uh, well, since we were just talking about Turin, I'll name another place in Turin that was very interesting they had a restaurant that was ran by immigrants and actually a lot of them were refugees not just immigrants Mm. and uh they also they had a lot going on so this might sound complex because it kind of was but in the restaurant they also had a tool library where people could literally get access to tools like house tools and other things and borrow it for free they also had a lawyer available like if people needed one-on-one support or if people needed to know how to use a tool they also had a recording studio the lawyer is such a big one there's so many times that i want to consult a lawyer just to know there's so much to know Mm -hmm. about protecting yourself I think that's kind of particular to um, like our society, but it's just good knowledge to steward in general. Yeah, so definitely. So somebody that can help you with the tools, which is mm-hmm. also really big. 
Yeah, exactly. People don't realize how much they need that until they fuck up using a power drill. Mm-hmm. Seems so simple. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so they... Um, and this was all available to the community for free. Also. Well, sorry, not the restaurant. You did have to pay to go there. But all of the other things that they had were available um, for free. And I always think of, like, a tool library. It's just, like, a simple thing that we could have. Even in our libraries, having a wall of tools. I guess libraries have some tools you can access, but... Anyway, they also, um, in... Turin's, it's also just very interesting because they have these neighborhood associations which are like associated with the government, but they're cooperative models that are, they're like supported by the government and cooperatively run. And uh, a lot of those also have legal help support and just like practical things like trying to find a job and uh, like translation support like so many things it's actually a very refugee friendly city Turin Um, and they have squats that like have been occupied for like 30 plus years like it's such a radical space they have this radio station where people will like let them know when there's police on the train so that they could like know which ones they could get on for free and like won't be fine oh my god (laughs) could you imagine if that was in new york city actually i saw a post like especially because they raised the uh subway rate Mm. so i saw a bunch of posts online of like here's the subway stations where you can hop and here's the ones that you really should not hop because there's a very high chance that you'll get caught by the police and even just in all my roamings around the city i've seen certain ones like i go to certain ones i'm like i'm not doing it (laughs) sometimes that's much yeah we gotta help each other out we have to help each other out that post was popular (laughs) come on but back to it like I guess it brings up an interesting point of like, yeah, how to navigate trust in these type of dynamics and just trust in community because, yeah, I think, I think it's important to consider if you want to move into being grounded in more community systems. Yeah. And a lot of the times I, I will think about trust in community of like you know the polarization between like colonizing versus actually getting into getting to know your community and by that I mean rather than just going in and being like oh yeah I'm entitled to this here I go I'm gonna do whatever I think coming in and being like okay what are the needs of this community what do these people want in this moment right now what do they need in this current moment right now which is kind of reflective of um solidarity some solidarity economy principles so Mm -hmm. um and with that i i think about how the existing community needs to build trust with the new people that are there and vice versa Mm -hmm. um but more importantly the former so Mm -hmm. what can you say about trust in these um systems Mm. Yeah, that is such an important part of it. It's really at the foundation. And, I mean, there's so many instances where we see, like, white saviorism and people think that they know what a community needs and they really don't. And then that actually, like, creates trauma where it's harder for that community to trust. Mm-hmm. And so, and then you get further from being able to share the resources that are available, which is a big goal. Exactly. Exactly. And so for me, I think a big part of building trust is like, first we need to get to know each other. Like we need spaces to gather um, or 
like even in my instance where I work virtually a lot of the times like just making space to have one-on-ones with people to know who they are like Mm. beyond their work identity or whatever y'all are in collaboration doing like know who they are really deeply listen to listen and (laughs) create the space for them to share who they are mm -hmm. you know i feel like that's an important part because a lot of the times we may come with a lens to some or our own lens to somebody that has its own bias and discrimination you just project onto somebody yeah so it's like creating space for them to share who they are feel comfortable doing that and then listening to whatever they want to say or share yes exactly and i think also beyond that like then start to show up for that person maybe even before they share their need you are just showing up because you already know because you've been in relationship with them Mm -hmm. and there's this practice actually that i do which you experienced the offers and needs market oh yeah which is such a good way to build trust with strangers even people that you know already and the way it works is that people initially share their offers first which is also a way to build trust and to be comfortable being vulnerable to share your needs and so in these offers it can be anything from a a medicine that someone has made or a consultant for how to do a comic book and then people share their needs and that's where I feel like so much magic happens too because then when people share their needs sometimes you realize that you have so much more to offer and so just like creating that space to share offers and needs is important I think because then you start to meet each other's needs and through that you're able to build trust and also just expressing your needs you need to have some level of trust with someone to be vulnerable in that way Yeah. and so I think yeah continuously honoring the needs of the community around you and i think something that stands out to me from what you said is also just it's not an offers and wants market like it's primarily offers and needs and i think it's important to even just be connected with that in yourself first and then on a community level because and then on a and then keep scaling up from there you know domestic international etc global because we have so much overconsumption. it's like i feel like a lot of the overconsumption it comes from a want versus a need whereas like a lot of people don't have their needs met like we yeah so mm-hmm. i just thought of that when you were when we're for me revisiting the idea of offers and needs but yeah. while you're describing it yes and yeah the needs could also be like things that are not tangible Mm -hmm. maybe it's just like i need someone to give me advice or to just listen to me or to share their experience with me and yeah i just love that as a model and I, I even encourage people, if you live in an apartment building, put up an offer to need sheet and see like how people interact with it. And I think the trick is to put an offer in need first and then people will follow. Because so, yeah, once they see what it's about and just in all community spaces, like what are other community spaces that that, that can be put up? Yes, like a bulletin board. Mm-hmm. Sometimes you go to a business and they'll have a bulletin board. What would that look like to have an offer to needs? So yeah, I think designing it into our 
convening spaces, whether that's online or in person, to do offers and needs, to do opportunities for feedback circles, to have one-on-ones with the people that we're in community with, and to care. Yeah, I think at this point, I don't know if you wanted to touch on anything else, but I definitely want to leave space for that, leave space for any closing remarks that you want to share, um, maybe a little bit about what you're working on, you know, something, of course, you're working on a lot, but something that you're excited about that's upcoming that you want to share that you're working on. Um, and also resources like where can people turn if they want to find out more about this um, like we've mentioned throughout what what are some specific models that people can refer to and any other resources that have really been important for you on your journey as you embrace this mm-hmm. in your life in a lot of different ways mm. there's like should I give more like food collective examples I think that there's also so much potential in like creating collective or cooperative models that are reducing food waste Mm, there's so (laughs) many there's so many budding projects out there there's so many different kinds yeah there's one um in particular that i've been like dreaming about which i actually i almost did this with children but getting um food that would otherwise be thrown away and doing cooking workshops with kids such a good idea oh my god Mm -hmm. and then for and that can start to empower them to like mitigate waste in their homes and teach their parents about it food that comes from outside of what their parents or what their family or whoever they live with of what they're learning already and learn from other kids and the way that they have a relation with food Mm mm-hmm yeah and i don't know i'm sure there must be models that exist that are already doing this that i just don't know about there is one uh called essential food and medicine they're based in the bay area and they make juices and other medicine with like food that would have been thrown away otherwise juicing is such a good good thing to do mm-hmm. with especially with like food that would have gone to waste yeah and they had a place that they were working with called Cobb on Wood which no longer exists but is also an incredible model of solidarity and they turned a homeless encampment underneath a, a bridge that or an overpass that they that it was it was inhabited for a while for years by the homeless but it was really like just uncared for there was a lot of trash and they decided to build cob homes so actually not homes but their structures and one had like a shared kitchen there was an apothecary there was a shower under an overpass yes i wonder how they like my first thought is how did they allow that to pass through the city oh that's why it doesn't exist anymore oh no (laughs) because caltrans which is uh like the transit system in california they demolished it i actually don't know if they were the ones that demolished it but they were the reason why it no longer exists and they really beautified this space and also the cob is fire retardant and so some of this essential food and medicine 
was going to these people as well and they were like a part of the design process they were building it as well like they were really creating a sense of community Mm. and now they're like putting them in communities with sheds that are filled with formaldehyde so yeah and also speaking of waste they took a lot of the trash there and used that as insulation for the cop Mm. so genius repurposing of our of our local resource streams yes exactly (laughs) because sometimes what what one person sees as waste could be a resource for another thing offers and needs completely completely so yeah there's so much potential in like agriculture and I hope more people create cooperative models um there's also cacao farmers one Oh, they're amazing. They're a collective of cacao farmers all over the world, actually. And uh, they are also a co-op. And um, they're... I can't remember their name at this moment. But I'm going to... They were going to put it in the show notes. Um, Oh, it's actually called the Transatlantic Chocolate Collective. Ooh. So. And they, what, do you know some of how that works? So, the way it works is they're, they're individual farmers, but they are pooling what they're growing. And then they actually send it, which I just learned a couple weeks ago that they send it to Ohio for it to get processed and then packaged. Wow. Yeah, they're doing it pretty small scale um, because obviously distribution is quite difficult. Mm. So, yeah, they're really cool. That's cool. I hope, uh, I hope they're supporting... They are, yes, they definitely are, and that was a huge thing because they're also working with like farmers in Africa, and most of the listeners and you probably already know like the harm that's going on with uh, cacao farming in Africa, and so yeah, this uh, that's a huge part of why they're doing this. Yeah. Oh, that's a good one. Um, but for resources, I mean, my podcast is a pretty good resource and it has international solidarity economy models in various sectors and for U.S., the New Economy Coalition, which I'm actually doing a series with right now for the podcast, they have a membership of Solidarity Economy Models. And there's also the Solidarity Economy Principles that I had said earlier. If you're looking to like get really deep into the values of the Solidarity Economy and practices. Uh, oh, there's so much. There's also like the U.S. Federation of Worker Co-ops. If you're looking for a directory... And also intro to what worker co-ops are in the U.S. Mm. And yeah, honestly, if you start with even that, you'll start to go down a rabbit hole. (laughs) There's also grassroots economic organizing, which is such an amazing resource and was actually like a really huge reason why I got into solidarity economy stuff there's a lot of elders that have been doing this work for decades so that's such a good archive for like everything honestly with that alone you could go so deep and yeah 
just check out what's going on around you locally. Like, I guarantee there's some type of solidarity economy work where you are. And if you feel like there's not, create it. As simple as an offer is a needs list in wherever you gather or engage with other humans. Yes, exactly. And like we said before, even just checking in with yourself, you know? Yeah, checking in with your neighbors. Speak to your neighbors. Speak to your neighbors. (laughs) Yeah. Amazing, okay. Yeah, actually a really cute thing that I'll... (laughs) The last thing I'll say, which you don't have to add this, but... My neighbor upstairs gave us some tamales that was made with the tomatoes from our garden. And so even that little practice is like a solidarity economy. That's so beautiful. (laughs) Yeah, it it, it can be a really simple thing, honestly. So kind of, even if you do end up going down a rabbit hole, remember that it can get deep and it can be widespread, but it can also be simple. Yes. And every step matters mm-hmm. start with yourself and the people around you yeah amazing that's a great closing remark <laughs> so thank you so much ebony for all that you've had to share with us today and to all the listeners thank you so much for tapping in remember to check out our website communityagproject.com follow us on instagram for updates and other posts and talk soon. Bye.